For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. As for the rain and the snow, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and finishing seed to the sow, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the water, so shall my word, which uh, word be which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire. Obviously, Isaiah 55:11 is the is the famous passage here about how God's word goes out and doesn't return void. It's used a lot in cultural engagement and and other thoughts that we have about the Lord. Uh, but it's important not to not to forget six and seven. I didn't read it, um, but it makes clear the compassion of the Lord. And then eight, nine, eight and nine essentially are saying uh, not not that the Lord is higher than us. Not that he's this much higher, uh, but that he's other. You can read something like this, and it sounds like we're of the same, but he's just uh, eminently higher. That is not the case. That's not what he's saying here. We are so other that he becomes incomprehensible to us. This is a passage that speaks to the incomprehensibility of God. He condescends to communicate to us, to to reveal his word to us, uh, and even that's a struggle. Uh, but it's partial. And so uh, then he gives us the metaphor there of rain and snow coming down. His word does the same thing. He will make efficacious what he will. When rain and snow comes, it has an effect on the land and on the crops and all the rest. So does his word. It goes. It's not a hit or miss. It's not a shooting gallery. Um, these are... These are uh, This is a blessing of God to give us his word. And when it goes out, when it's distributed in all the means that he's designed, um, it is efficacious. We don't always have the privilege of seeing that. In fact, probably most of the time, we don't have the privilege of seeing or experiencing that. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, it is effective in our life. And so the call, when we, this general call of finding, be satiated by Christ or finding your satisfaction in Christ, it's pivotal that our minds be in the word and be reassured uh, of all the promises he's given us um, and, again, to be satisfied in him. So with that, incline your ear and be satisfied with what you hear. Amen. If you would, turn your Bibles to Psalm 120. In your bulletins and outline, I encourage you to locate that, use it to follow along, take notes and the, the like. Today we begin a series on the songs, the songs of ascents, and uh, those songs are Psalm 120 through 134, and I'm going to be reading from every one of those psalms this morning for our scripture reading. So um, this is God's word. Let me invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of our, of our great king's words. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. Psalm 122, look there with me, a song of ascents of David. Psalm 123, a song 
of a sense. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not reading what the Bible uh, you know, editors added. This is in the biblical Hebrew. This is in the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 124, a song of a sense of David. Psalm 125, a song of a sense. Psalm 126, a song of a sense. Psalm 127, a song of a sense of Solomon. Psalm 128, a song of a sense. Psalm 129, a song of a sense. Psalm 130, a song of a sense. Psalm 131, a song of a sense of David. Psalm 132, a song of a sense. Psalm 133, a song of a sense of David. Psalm 134, a song of a sense. If you look at Psalm 135, you will not see that preface. That being said, thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege you've given us to come this day and to look at this beautiful section in the Bible, um, nestled in the Psalms, a portion of scripture that you've given to every one of us here, intended for every one of us here to help us on our way as we endeavor to serve you, as we long and journey and uh, march to Zion, to the new uh, Jerusalem to the new uh, to the next age. God, we pray, bless this study today and the coming weeks as we dive into this section of Scripture. Bless it, O Lord, to our growth in Your grace, to our encouragement in You, to our ability to encourage each other. O Lord, to um, enable us together as a body to remain faithful, steadfast, immovable and thus always abounding in the word of the Lord and in the work of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Regardless of one's ethnicity, of one's economics, of one's job or lack thereof, life in the United States, comparatively speaking, is rather easy. I remember years ago hearing the induction speech of a, of a person who's being inducted to the National Football Hall of Fame. And the first third of it, this individual shared um, of the very difficult time he had growing up in the South. How they lived in, says, in a very, very small house. He had many brothers and sisters and, and there was only two bedrooms for the kids. And so all of the brothers slept in one room in one bed. And all the sisters slept in one room in one bed. And and um, many times he went to class, to, to school, um, um, hungry because he had no food. Um, and he described the difficulties his mom had uh, um, um, carrying one, two, sometimes three jobs. And he talked about how hard it was in tears. And hearing that, it was quite moving. And you go, wow, what, what, where this man came from. And yet, in, in the God's providence, around that time... We had a missionary present in our church his ministry in Haiti. And in Haiti, he shared, not knowing about this speech, had nothing to do with the, that speech, but he shared that the poor in Haiti live in their, in their, in their um, self-made shacks, right? They just put cardboard up or they put up whatever they can find, tin, and they sleep in that and, and they eat dirt. That's their primary meal is dirt, 
And when I heard this Hall of Fame speech, I thought of that. And I thought to myself, as moving as that was, that was not poverty. So regardless of what someone's situation may be in the United States, the reality is, in comparison to the rest of the world, man, we've got it easy. Notice the words from Tim Worstall from the Forbes magazine. He wrote these words, real poverty is that $600 a year of the car, Central African Republic, or most of humanity for most of history, or the $1.90 a day that the World Bank today identifies as absolute poverty. America simply does not have any of this. It just doesn't exist, and it hasn't for at least half a century, and was rare even a century ago. The guy's article is basically saying, we've never known this poverty. The U.S. has never known it. There's poverty going on in the world around us right now that we don't know. We live in a very wealthy land. And because of that, the reason I'm stressing that is because it's so easy, therefore, to be at home in the United States as Christians. It's so easy for us to love this land so much we take our focus off of God. It's so easy, therefore, to have our hopes and needs all met horizontally. To expect protection, not from God, but from man. To look to our government to pay our, our, our deficits, to, to, to protect us, etc., etc. And yet, brothers and sisters, in the Bible, it's very clear we ought not to do that as God's people. God's word says in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroying thieves break in and steal. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. Hebrews 13 says, Here we do not have a lasting city. Implication, put your focus and your hope and your longing on something else, not this earth. And um, Paul says in Philippians 3, Our citizenship is in heaven. That's the backdrop, brothers and sisters, of our study of the songs of of a sense. Um, this, to appreciate this entire section of 15 Psalms, you need to have the mind of a pilgrim. You need to be a pilgrim because the songs of a sense were written for pilgrims, for people who don't believe they belong in the world in which they live, for, for men and women longing for the earthly, I'm sorry, for the heavenly kingdom of God. That's what this section's for. Um, and thus, this morning and in the coming weeks, we'll be looking at this from the perspective, the assumption that you and I do not fit in this world. Yes, we live in America, and yes, it's easy to fall in love with it, and they call yourself an American to claim your citizenship. I'm an American citizen. Don't let those people from other, other countries come, you know, illegally. I'm an American citizen and try to preserve this culture. When brothers and sisters, the American uh, culture, our citizenship is in heaven. This is not our home. We are missionaries in the United States. We have got to get beyond that. And thus, this section of scripture, if you understand that, if you believe that, if you live there, man, oh man, this will be food to your wounded soul. This morning, it's my intent to introduce you to this section in the Bible. 
And uh, to do that, I want to begin by looking with you at the biblical theological background. And yes, I'm going to start reading in the New Testament, even though the songs of a sense are in the old, because what it says in the new helps us understand the mindset of what or the context and culture of the old. So if you would, in your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. So today we're going to jump around God's word a little bit. And then next week we'll dive into the Psalms. So Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. This was written um, of the patriarchs who lived prior to when God established the kingdom of Israel. Okay, so this is before that. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had had, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. That is the mindset of the patriarchs prior to the kingdom of Israel. And beginning with, based on this uh, context, if you go back to Hebrews chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 11, and walk your way through verse 3, starting with Abel, to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. Every one of those patriarchs and those men living in that time, their families, had the mentality that this world was not their home, that they don't belong here. In fact, as the text says, they were strangers and exiles on this earth. But then historically, something happened. And that something was God... um, bringing his people, organizing his people into a physical nation on this earth, known as, we call it, a theocracy, okay? The time when Israel became a kingdom. And during that time, God gave them land. He gave them a boundary. They already a minute, but now they had specified boundaries, a king. They had an economy. They had a trade. They had prosperity. They had protection, And you know what God's people did? Rather than taking this as a type or a foreshadow of what God was going to provide in Jesus Christ, which is what the Old Testament Israel was all about. It was a foreshadow. It was a tutorial. It was a pedagogical. It was was to teach God's people as little people, as as, um, young people in the faith, what life would be like under the Messiah. Rather than, than, than taking that, God's people fell in love with the world. They fell in love with the security of the world and the the prosperity of the world in which they lived. They lost sight of God. And so pretty soon they wanted kings like the nations. And pretty soon that led to they wanted worship like the nations. And so they changed their liturgy from from the worship of God to how the nations worship their gods. And they became very worldly, very earthly, very temporal. They weren't longing for and looking for Christ or God, the Messiah. They were rather very happy to live in the present state as long as they were happy. So what did God do? Well, we know from his promises. If you do that, Leviticus 26, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. And that's exactly what he did. 2 Kings 17, 6. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to it. Speaking of the northern kingdom of Israel. In the ninth year of Hoshea, 722 B.C., 
the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile in Assyria. Then roughly 150 years later, 140 years later, we pick it up in 2 Kings 25. You know by this time God's people had split. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom's gone in 722. 2 Kings 25, speaking of the southern kingdom of Judah... Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, 586 B.C., okay, 586, King of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the, of the uh, Chaldeans who were the... Um, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around uh, Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. So once again, God's people are now exiles. And they would remain that way forevermore. Okay, God's people remained and remain as exiles up to this day. And hence, they had, no, they had no city, they had no kingdom, they had no nation to which they called their own. They were pilgrims. They were people who, who lived and were scattered throughout the entire um, earth, so to speak, known world, and, um, and they had no home. They were servants of the living God, but that's, that was their identity. They didn't have an identity like we might do. I'm an American, right? No, they're, they're children of the living God. Um, and that continued through all the way up to the time of Jesus Christ, such that in Christ's day when God's people were living, they too were reminded that they were aliens and, and strangers. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Recall this book was written in 63 A.D., right before the Neronian persecutions of 64. Peter seeing the handwriting on the wall, God clearly inspiring him to write this epistle, knowing what's ahead, knowing that difficult times were ahead. He didn't know how bad, but in the next year, tens of thousands of God's people, people who read this epistle for the first time, think about it, the original audience who read this epistle they would be dead in one year. Not all of them, but many of them. In fact, the one who wrote this epistle, Peter, would be dead in one year. Head chopped off. Or I'm sorry, he was not. That was Paul. Crucified upside down in one year. And this is what he reminded God's people. Peter, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, uh, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Again, 63 AD, right before all the persecutions, Peter reminded the people of God, you are not citizens of Rome, even if you are. You are not citizens of this world, even if you think you are. You are citizens of God's kingdom. You, therefore, in this world's uh, perspective, must identify yourself as an alien and a stranger. Notice those two words. The first word is alien. The idea with this word is a temporary resident alien. It is the term used in the Old Testament of God's people prior to the kingdom and after the kingdom years. That is the term. You think, of, you know, we have the word Christian. What are you? I'm a Christian. Do you know what would be the better term? Alien. 
Okay? Now, there's a lot of terms we could use for who we are, disciples and things like that. But, but get this, guys. The predominant word that describes God's people throughout the entire Old Testament and New wouldn't be Christian. Um, it could be a d- d- uh, disciple. But, the, but clearly, one of the self-designated ideas or concepts was alien. I don't fit here. This is not my home. And then he says scattered. And scattered is a word, it, it, the, the Greek word is diaspora, which is where we get the word diaspora, which the Jews use in, in the diaspora. And the diaspora, or the diaspora, was basically not who you were, but where you were. You were scattered throughout the entire world. In other words, you, didn't, you weren't uh, congealed in one place. And thus you could say, this is, this is God's kingdom right here. You, you, no more. No more. Now, we, we would say God's kingdom is the entire world. But I'm thinking of, of the theocracy, like in the Old Testament, where they could say, this is God's kingdom right here. This land, this territory is God's kingdom. That's our king. Um, they could no longer do that. In essence, they said, I don't have an earthly kingdom. I don't have an earthly home. The place I'm currently living, I'm an alien. I'm a resident alien, which means I'm here short term. I'm not here for the long haul. I'm here for the short term. And the short term meaning, that doesn't mean we don't, Jeremiah 29, plant and sell and, and minister and pray for the governing authorities, on and on and on. But you recognize this is not my eternal home. We're here, but for a very short time. It's the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're looking for. That's the idea behind alien scattered. In light of this, brothers and sisters, Peter wanted God's people to understand that with their Old Testament brethren, the world is not their home. It's not a friend of grace. To be a servant of God is to become nationless, for our citizenship is in heaven. This truly is the mindset we must have as children of God, whether, whether we're studying the salt or not. That must be our mindset. But knowing that mindset, that is for whom the Psalter is given, the songs of ascent. Now, with that, as aliens, God gave his people a very um, important um, calling. He placed upon them a very holy duty. And that duty, if you would turn to John chapter 4, 23, that duty is worship. You know, the first thing, the first thing we read after God, after the fall, after Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, the first thing that we read is the worship service. Noah, the first thing he did when once he left the ark, the first thing he did is he, he built um, a, uh, uh, um, an altar to worship God. Abraham is known as a man of the altar. Everywhere he went, he established an altar. Throughout the Old Testament wilderness wandering, God's everything that God had his people do, how they sat, how they encamped in the wilderness, they put the tabernacle at the center. God's people understood they were worshiping people. John 4, 23, and this is why. John 4, 20, uh, 23, Christ said, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. This is important. For such the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Do you understand that? When we think of redemption, when, when, when we think of salvation, we, because we're selfish, we're, 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 we are, you know, the world revolves around us, we think of redemption, salvation as It's all about delivering us from hell. Jesus Christ came to deliver you and me from hell. And that's true. But that's not why he came ultimately. That's the means 
to a glorious end. Why did he come? John 4, 23. He came to bring true worshipers to God. You can't get a true worshiper if their sins aren't uh, forgiven, if they're damned uh, to hell. So he comes, delivers us from sin, not because that's the end. That's the means to the greater end. And what is the greater end? Enjoying God, glorifying him, exalting him, worshiping him. That is why God has called us. That's why he made us. And that, it will be, that will occupy us for the rest of eternity, glorifying and enjoying God. Right? Well, with that, what's the charge therefore he gives pilgrims? Romans 12. Turn there with me if you would. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You probably know this by heart. I hope you know this verse by heart. Romans 12, Paul writes, I urge you therefore... Brethren, in essence, I urge you as aliens and strangers, because what he's going to say is applicable to aliens and strangers. I urge you, therefore, brethren, aliens and strangers, by the mercies of God, not because he's scary, but because he's gracious and kind, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, and that is the language of worship. You would present an offering to the Lord. He wants us to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. A dead sacrifice would be me taking a sheep, killing it, or putting my hands on it, killing it, transferring my sin to it. A living sacrifice is what we're called to to be. Not a dead one, but a living one. We're called to recognize that as aliens and strangers, God has called us to be a people who render worship to him, not just with our mouths, but with our entire lives, Monday through Sunday, Sunday through Saturday, seven days a week at all times. That's the idea. We're called to be worshipers, John 4, Romans 12. We're called to be worshipers at all time, with all things, in all places, with our minds and our hearts and our, our, our hands and our bodies and all things. We're called to worship God, right? And because of that, this transcends scripture, this, this calling, this purpose, this telos, this end, transcends scripture. Because of that, worship was a major part of God's people. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 23. Worship was to be a major part of the um, people of God. That's, it still is that, right? Hebrews 10, don't, don't forsake the assembly. We're here because this is a major part of our lives. We begin the week with worship, right? We begin this way because Christ rose from the dead on this day. We begin worshiping, praising God, celebrating, rejoicing over the conqueror of Jesus Christ, the conquest. And that brings us through the rest of the week as men and women, aliens and strangers, but nevertheless victorious in this world with a glorious future because of our glorious foundation, Jesus Christ, right? Well, get this, Exodus chapter 30, uh, 23, 14 through 15 a.m. I'm going to skip to 16 because it, it, I'm just trying to save time. Three times a year, God commanded his people, you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. That's Passover. Skip down to 16. Um, also, you shall observe the feast of the harvest of, of the first fruits of your labors from, from what you sow in your field. That's Pentecost. Passover. Pentecost. Also, the feast of, of a gathering. That's the feast of tabernacles, booths. Last week, the, the text we were looking at was about this feast. 
At the end of the year, when you gather in the first fruit, the, in the fruit of your labors from the field, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God for worship. So, while there are a whole lot more holy days in the Old Testament, nevertheless, God's people, all males of Judaism, all males, had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year for Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booze or Tabernacle. Okay? Three times a year. Now, some of those people lived in Babylon. That would have been a week, if not more, not a week, months, taking months to get to Jerusalem if they were obedient. Some people lived in Turkey or Asia Minor. Some people lived in Greece. Some people lived in Rome. How long would it have taken for you to get there? Exodus was written at a time when God's people weren't that dispersed. But this was applicable to God's people everywhere at all times. They were supposed to go to the temple of God three times a year. Now, brothers and sisters, what would have been involved in that? Imagine you've got eight or nine kids. You're aggregarian. You've got eight or nine kids. You've got, you know, you've got to take care of the food. I mean, how much of an undertaking would it be to travel months on foot to get to Jerusalem to worship God? Well, that much, all of that would have been a massive distraction. You could have been, you know, sometimes I've heard this, actually, uh, uh, Kuiper, Bernie Kuiper, one of my mentors in the days gone old. Um, Bernie Kuiper used to say, you know, if, if Satan can't keep you from church, he'll get you here angry. Okay, right? Imagine a week-long journey, how, how frustrated you could be. You know, I told you to stop it. Johnny, stop it. Egging your brothers on, hot, right? So God didn't want his people coming to the worship frustrated and discombobulated. So you know what he did? He commanded them on the journey to Jerusalem to sing. To use this time singing. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 29. Thirty verse twenty nine. Listen to what this says. You will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival, and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord to the rock of Israel. This passage is not commanding them; it's presuming. This is what's going to happen just like when you march to Zion for those feasts and you sing, this is what it's going to be like. But the point of this verse is, you know what God's people were to occupy themselves as they went to the temple three times a year to worship God? They were to occupy themselves with singing. As they went, they were not to just sit there and go, oh, are we there yet? You know, how much longer can we stop at this rest area? No, they were the entire assembly marching up, walking up, were to be singing. And you say, well, what were they to be singing? The top 40 from Rome or Greece or whatever country they're living in? No, they were to be singing 15 songs known as the Song of Ascents. This section of scripture was given to God's people so that as they traveled to worship on Sunday morning, as they traveled to the temple, 
three times a year or four times or five times or however many times. They were to be singing songs which God, get this guys, specifically ordained in terms of content and placement to prepare pilgrims living in a sinful world to put their gaze and focus upon Christ and worship him. That's what this section of scripture is for. Incredible. All right, with that, let me introduce you, therefore, to the Song of Ascent. So back now to the Psalms. Songs of Ascent, 15 Psalms, are in a book called the Book of Psalms, which we call the Psalter. So don't let that language throw you off. It's a Psalter, is the, is the a collection of 150 Psalms. Now, the Psalter, just as a background general, is divided into five different books. Don't let this throw you off. Go to Psalm verse one or chapter 1. Psalm uh, chapter 1, hopefully you're all there in your Bibles. Do you see above Psalm 1 what it says? In your Bibles, what's it say? Or below it, a big huge phrase. Or phrase. It's, uh, it's a, uh, a title. What's it say? Book 1. Thank you. Go to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. What do you see? Thank you. Book two. Did you look or are you just throwing it out? Okay, you're on the notes. All right. Go, go to Psalm 73. Guess what you're going to read? Book three. Book three. Fantastic. Book three. And so on. So this Psalter, God organized. Now, guys, this is not from the publisher of your Bible. This is in the original Hebrew. Book one, these Psalms. Book two, these Psalms. Book three. So your your Psalter is composed of five different books. Now, B- Bob Godfrey, Robert Godfrey, former president of Westminster Theological Seminary in uh, San Diego, he, um, in his work, Learning to Love the, the Psalms, has provided a wonderful outline and an understanding of content with regards to these five books. Notice in your outline, I've got them there, um, in your, your notes. Um, each section he titles. For example, the first section, Psalms 1 through 41, is known as confidence in God's care, okay? Meaning all of these psalms seem to reflect this overriding theme, confidence in God's care. Notice what he wrote. The psalms in book one tend to be personal, reflecting some level of distress that quickly resolves into confidence in God. They are where you should look for comfort in distress, being psalms for those who are oppressed, sick, or suffering. So there's a progression to this, to this book, to these books. So those are the confidence in God's care. Second book, commitment to God's kingdom. The Psalms in book two are less personal and more community-oriented. They take into consideration the whole people of God and how God is providing for his people. Okay. Now, if you look at the third book, this is crisis over God's promises. This is the heart of the Psalter. Okay. Quote, these Psalms in book three are the emotional heart of the Psalter containing the most distressful psalms in the entire book. They represent a great crisis in the life of the psalmist, a spiritual crisis of doubt and disillusion when it comes to the promises of God. Then book four, comfort in God's faithfulness. 
These psalms reflect on God's work in creation and his covenant with Abraham. They set out to answer the cry of the psalmist in book 3 by proving that God is faithful to his promises. Then book 5, celebration of God's salvation. These are a review of Israel's history and show that God has had a plan throughout the history of Israel, even amidst exile. They further prove that God is a promise-keeping God. Now, brothers and sisters, if you look at that progression, look at your notes, confidence in God's care, commitment, crisis, comfort, and celebration, there's a progression there. And he, in his series, in his book, he says it sort of, it sort of follows the path of Christian maturation. Book one would be, the, would be what leads a person to saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Book two, they become a committed. They grow. They're discipled. They become committed to God's kingdom. And then book three, they, they encounter horrible crisis, which just shakes their faith, makes them want to rebel against God. Um, and then book four comes and says, oh, but God's the creator. He created all things. He can certainly help you through this. Or two, he's the God of the covenant. He has loved you and will continue to love you. Before the world began, he'll continue to love you way beyond that. So trust him in the midst of your crisis. And then book five, that is where the mature saint gathers with God's people to worship. And thus that last book contains all these communal communal sections um, psalms within psalms or a psalter within a psalter in the words of Spurgeon for example Psalm 113 through 118 is known as the Egyptian halal that's what they sang at the Passover so when you read in your Bible in Matthew 26 after singing a hymn they went out to the garden the hymn they would have sung was 118 it was the end of the Egyptian halal and by the word by way of footnote the word halal is the Hebrew word for praise and when you intensify it, as, the, uh, as it is, you translate it as hallelujah, or uh, I'm sorry, halal is the intensified, sorry. Um, we then add God to it, and that means praise God, right? Hallelujah, okay? But th- that word halal is intensified. Praising God is the idea, okay? So um, Psalm 113, 118, the Egyptian halal. Psalm 119, I learned this this past week, I didn't know this. Psalm 119 was utilized at Pentecost. God's people were to sing through the entire psalm at Pentecost. Psalm 119. Psalm 120 through 134, the subject of our study, the song of ascent sung by the pilgrims who traveled to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost, and and, uh, uh, Passover. And then Psalm 146 through 150 is known as the Halal Psalms because they begin and they end with praise. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And it ends with hallelujah, right? Each one of those five psalms. Now, if you want further study, I commend you learning to love the psalms by Godfrey because this last, sex, this last five verses, he believes, it does a masterful part in showing this, that each of those psalms summarize each of the books that you've just been given. The content of Psalm 146 corresponds to, to the book one. And the content of Psalm 147 corresponds to book two, the content. Psalm 148, crisis. It fits to the, the crisis. So again, I commend that uh, to you. That being said, that brings us to our study, the Songs of Ascent. So notice with me Psalm 120, one more time. And uh, you can turn there or not. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. What is that? Now you think of it, go back 200 years before all of this wonderful, I mean, everything I've taught you, I'm a, guys, just to let you know, I'm a plagiarist, all right? If, if, uh, I'm a massive plagiarist. I rarely teach anything that's new. 
to me, okay? It's usually, it's usually from this commentary to that commentary. You know, I got 25 different authors that I'm pulling from, and bleh, I throw up on you guys, okay? So um, this is nothing new, okay? But 200 years ago, they didn't have those resources. So they're going along in the Hebrew Renaissance opened up the languages, so 1600s on, they're going along and they read Song of Ascent. What is that? Uh, on these 15 songs, actually 14, Psalm 122 does not have that title in the Hebrew. But you got all these names, oh, Song of Ascent, Song of Ascent. So what is a Song of Ascent? So in the 1800s, there came up to, in history, four different views of what this must be. You're reading a Song of Ascent, what is that? Well, the word for song, um, um, what is it? Um, sheer straightforward. It's the word song, hymn, psalm. Okay? You can't mess that one up. But the other word, mahala, that's the word that has a vast, wide range of definition. So it means, let me give them to you, a going up and ascent. So going up a mountain, mahala. A rising in the mind. You know, I'm so angry today, but, but God, you're a glorious mahala. A rising of the mind. Thirdly, a step or a stairway. Mahala. One, two, three, four, five mahala. Mahalal. Okay? Mahalil. Whatever. Um, Mahalim would be what I'd say. Five steps. Okay? Um, the th- uh, fourth one, high estimation. Right? I'll tell you what. I met Frank. That guy is a man of God. Mahalal. That's a high estimation of that guy. He's no, he's no general guy. He's a great guy. Mahala. Uh, last one is, is upper chamber. So in one sense, that's where the sound booth is. Mahala, an upper chamber. Okay, so the, what is this? These are the songs of the upper chamber. Eh, that makes sense. Songs of going upstairs. Mm, songs of ascending in my brain. You know, what are these? Okay, so there have been four um, suggestions throughout history. Let me give them to you. The first one is an ascent is a step or a gradation within the the Psalms. Okay, this is the 1800s. And they made the observation that it seems as though each of the Psalms are are related. Psalm 122 or, or 121 starts where Psalm 120 ends. And Psalm 122 starts where Psalm 121 ends. So they said, that's the ascent. There's an ascension in the actual body known as the Psalms of Ascents. That makes perfect sense. But brothers and sisters, what they, were, they were just on the cusp of learning about Hebrew lit- uh, language. That is what we, you've already know, you already know what that is. That's known as progressive parallelism. And that is found throughout the Hebrew Bible. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Progressive parallelism, we say the same thing over and over, but you progress each time. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. That's a type of praise. Right? Praise the Lord. Give thanks unto the Lord. Call on his name. Now we're getting really specific. So you're saying the same thing over and over, but you're progressing as you say it. Right? That's what, so these guys in 1800 said, that's what this means. This whole section is simply an ascension of thought. Okay? Well, today there is not a biblical scholar that I could read that believes that. They're right. The Psalms do that, but that's not why God put a sense there. Okay, well then, well then uh, secondly, this is Judaism. Ascents are stairs. If you look at the Hebrew temple, the Jewish temple, 15 stairs between the court of the women, the court of the Israelite, 15 stairs. So therefore, in the Talmud, it says, 
the Psalms of Ascents correspond to the 15 stairs going up to the temple. So it was suggested that the Levite singers would stand on all of those stairs and sing these psalms. Today, biblical scholars, evangelical scholars disagree with that. Judaism, I don't know if they still hold to, to that, but that's what, the, what they'd have to because that's what the Talmud says. But that's not, of course, and the Talmud is not scriptural, okay? It's, it's, it's extra biblical. Okay, well then, those are out. Third one, and that is a sense of the going ups of pilgrims to the annual feast. That is the predominant view today. I'd say the 90 percentile, 90 percent of most scholars say this. Okay, it's, it's an ascension that God's people ascended up to the temple because Jerusalem was on a mountain. As they ascended up, they were to sing these songs. And obviously, that's my view, and I'll be preaching and teaching these texts from that perspective. But there's a fourth view that we don't want to miss. And that fourth view sort of is the application of the third view. And that is a sense of the going up of pilgrims unto their heavenly home with God. Those who believe in, this, in the third one, which is me, and many others like me, their application typically leads them to this fourth point. For example, uh, James Montgomery Boyce. These 15 psalms seem to have been used by pilgrims who were making their way to Jerusalem for the three major annual feasts. Joseph and Mary would have sung these psalms as they made their way to the city with the young Jesus, and Jesus would have sung them himself when he went to Jerusalem with his disciples. It has been said that these psalms do not reflect the high level of faith and spirituality found in the other psalms. And there's a reason for that, right? They are marked by a kind of plaintive note, by a mild sadness. If so, it is appropriate for those who were on, who were on their way to God's city, but had not yet reached it yet. It is this pilgrimage I'm sorry, it is this note of sadness that makes these songs so descriptive of the Christian's similarly hard and upward pilgrimage to the dark world toward heaven. So that's an application. Brothers and sisters, this is to be sung as you come to church. This is to be sung as you prepare for church on Monday morning. Sing through these psalms. Meditate on these songs. Have family devotions around these psalms over and over. Think of it. If you were a pilgrim coming from Babylon, you might sing through, through the psalms of ascent 50, 60, 70 times on your way to, the, uh, to worship. So prepare. Use this to, to enable you to, pray to, to worship God each Lord's Day. But also use this in your sojourn on this earth as you prepare to enter into the presence of God when he calls you at your death. That's how we'll be applying these. Now, we're way out of time. I just looked at the clock for the first time, sorry. We're over time. You got quotes there at the very end. So the importance of these songs for God's pilgrim. Brothers and sisters, Romans says, whatever was written in early times were written for our instructions. These are just as apropos in your life as they were with the day they were written. So, so please don't take this as, that's the Old Testament, it doesn't apply to me. It does because everything written in the Old Testament was written for you and me to understand, to, be, to help us on our way. That being said, I'm going to take one more minute and say this. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to set up what I was going to read. It has been said that the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan is the Westminster Confession of Faith with people in it. Okay? It fleshes out the doctrines of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to take that same tenor and say this. You know what the Psalms are, including the Psalms of the Saints? You know what the Psalms are? They are the glorious grand doctrines of the faith with people in it. This flesh, read Spurgeon's quote. Um, 
brothers and sisters, he is so, so well. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll pick it up in the middle of it. That is probably the reason that David's Psalms are so universally in delight of experienced Christians. Whatever our frame of mind, whether ecstasy or depression, David has exactly described our, our emotions. He was an able master of the human heart because he had been tutored in the best of all schools, the school of heartfelt personal experience. As we are instructed in the same school, as we grow mature in grace in years, we increasingly appreciate David's Psalms and find them to be green pastures. Brothers and sisters, what, you know, how do we apply this, um, the importance of this section for us? It's, it's fleshing out our theology. To be a verse, a verse, not a verse, versed in the Psalter is to be people who are shepherds, able and equipped to care for and shepherd God's people. After all, they're songs. And what do you do with songs? You sing them together. This whole Psalter, this whole next 15 weeks is to be done together. What we learn is to be done together, singing it back and forth, telling it back and forth to one another as we encourage each other on our way to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what this section's for. In fact, you can read the next one from Bonhoeffer. The ancient church in some places required their ministers to have memorized the entire Psalter before they were ordained to the pastoral office. Incredible. Why? Why? It wasn't about knowledge. It was about the ability to bring the word of truth to people who are hurting, to people who are proud, to people who need hope in Jesus Christ. That's the Psalter. That's each of the sections, each of the books. That's the final book. That's the Song of Ascents. So in the coming weeks, um, study along with me. We're going to dive into this incredible section of Scripture, which is all designed to enable us to be better worshipers when we get here or when we get there. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible privilege before us as we anticipate studying this incredible passage, which, Lord, lo and behold, do we learn today you meant for us. Today, 2,000 years after the close of the New Testament, in some uh, uh, cases, um, 3,500 years after the Psalms were written. Father, I pray you'd give us the grace to be men and women who would dive into this section of Scripture, all of the Psalms, but Lord, certainly the coming weeks, to this section of Scripture, that we might be a people prepared and equipped to worship you when we get here and there. Give us the grace, O Lord, to realize these are songs and therefore to be sung to one another and therefore not to be sung independently by ourselves, but as a group, as we march to Zion together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.